Message from the Cast This is not a word-for-word rendition of Tempest in a Teacup by A.K.A. Vertigo. Please feel free to read the original fic along with us, but keep in mind that we have made necessary changes to accommodate the needs of a living and breathing audio experience. This is performed in the spirit of the source material, but with the recognition that necessary changes have been made. Thank you for listening. Zuko is 15 years old the first time he gets well and truly drunk. Really drunk. Brilliantly drunk. Ceremoniously drunk. It is a process that involves a harbor, a tavern, and memories of Uncle Iroh ordering one more round. The remaining details are blessedly hazy, though not enough so to stave off the suspicion that a duck may have been involved at some point in the evening. Zuko is 15 years and one day old when he wakes up with a monstrous headache, fuzzy teeth, and Katara's disproving frown. Neither one of these seems particularly auspicious. Here, drink this. The cold tea, because it's always tea, tastes so absolutely vile that it must be amazingly healthy. He downs the cup without complaint and starts to feel more optimistic about the possibility of being upright. Meanwhile, Katara moves softly, lighting candles and watching him out of the corner of her unsettling, brilliant eyes. Zuko appreciates the quietness more than the tea. Of course, he's not about to admit that sort of thing out loud. Do you think you could eat something? Yes. <sighs> no, never. <laughs> oh, you'll be fine. Your uncle already had a full breakfast, and he outdrank you by... One, two, seven cups. The expression of amused censure on her face is aggravatingly familiar. Apparently, you challenged him to a drinking contest after the third bottle. You lost some time after the eighth one, I think. It certainly feels that way, Zuko reflects, while the bones of his skull try to slide out. The feeling explains his lack of affront at the pressing of a cool, wet cloth to his face, and... Mm, must be a guy thing. Jealous you got left out? <laughs> Why? I got to see a crew full of grown, mostly sane men have their common sense overthrown by a couple of jugs. Not to mention the musical portion of the evening. I learned some lovely new tunes for the next music night. Especially that ditty about the monk's staff has a knob on the end. Very inspiring. Hmm. That reminds me, I'd better mend Lieutenant G's uniform before the poor man starts worrying too badly about where his pants ran away to. Mind you, he won't be the only aching head pondering that sort of question. The dancing got a little rowdy after the fifth wine crate. Zuko really, really hopes he was unconscious by that point. Unconscious and fully dressed. The gleam in Katara's eyes 
advises him not to ask. How long before we're ready to set sail? Uh, depends on how long until someone finds the holding cell key. Key? To unlock the helmsman? Kudara? Yes, Prince Zuko? Why is the helmsman locked in the holding cell? Probably for the same reason Master Iroh insisted on telling the story about when you were seven and got your shoes melted onto a suit of armor. You know, the one they had to carve you out of? Ah, of course. Zuko wonders how many people he's going to have to throw overboard during the course of the coming week. The thought is a vaguely uplifting one. I will never touch another drop of alcohol as long as I live. Which, judging from the way he's feeling, won't be all that long anyway. Well, how does it feel? Uh, like every organ in my body has been replaced with slime. Being fifteen, silly. Do you feel different? Wiser? Stronger? Taller? I feel like executing you for impertinence. So no change, huh? His head hurts. His mouth is dry. His face is damp and chilled despite the overbearing warmth of the room around him. Though docked, he can feel the ship rock softly on the water in an illusion of movement, of going and getting somewhere. He is fifteen and hungover, and the scar he didn't have when he was fourteen a year ago is in the same place it was when he was fourteen a week ago. Zuko closes his eyes. No change. Prince Zuko prohibits being done, said, or thought about ever again, in order for certain individuals to remain on the ship. Number 1. Bathing times will be decided according to each crew member's schedule, rank, and the ability to remember to lock the damn door when she's in there. <gasps> Number 2. No person on board has the authority to issue permission slips, and any individual who presents one will have her ink supplies confiscated for a week. Number three. No gambling with any civilians on board. Subset A. It's still gambling even if she gives back the winnings. Number four. Nobody is allowed to ask for the day off due to religious purposes on the basis that Master Iroh got up before breakfast. It's a miracle. Number five. Nobody is allowed to shake anything their mother gave them while on duty or off duty when I can see it. Number six. Music night is a privilege, not a rite of passage. Number seven. 
Katara is forbidden to share ideas unless a chaperone is present. Uncle Iroh doesn't count. Number 8. The proper response to an official order is not, Oh, you're just saying that to sound important. Number 9. Taking an officer's or a prince's belongings without permission is theft, not emergency acquisition for artistic purposes. Number 10. Only one person on board is allowed to wear a dress while on duty. She may not loan a dress to others, no matter what sort of bet was made and won or lost. Number 11. Any inquiry answered with, I've always wanted to try it, or why not, is a sign of prohibited activity. The miscreant in question is to be dragged out of wherever she has wormed her way in and escorted to her room. Number 12. The she of every she-is-not-allowed commandment issued applies to only one person on the ship, and she is no longer allowed to pretend ignorance of this. Number 13. No revolutions during dinner. Number 14. Armored rhinos are not to be taken out for walkies. Number 15. Anything involving live squid and a flute is definitely a bad idea. Number 16. A lap dance is not a valid form of currency and certain crew members will stop exploiting the officers this way when bargaining at the market. I don't care if she thinks it's an untapped economic resource. Number 17. Katara does not have the medical authority to prescribe naps. Number 18. It is better to beg forgiveness than to ask permission no longer applies to any female individual shorter than five feet. 19. Curiosity killed the cat and will get the girl locked in a trunk. Number 20. A good idea can only be labeled so by someone sane and non-blue-eyed. Things Katara promises not to do, say, or think about ever again in order to remain on the ship. Instead of being shipped back to the Fire Nation like a sack of cabbages. Number 1. Zuko is a prince, not a princess. 2. You'd have to be mad to try it is not a permission for me to try it. Three, my sense of humor is not a medical condition. 
neither is Zuko's lack of it. 4. I will not gamble with the crew. 4a. It's still gambling, even if I know I'll win. 5. I will not forge documentation granting me military rank. Ditto for the cat and the eel. 6. Serving tea to rhinos is a waste, not philanthropy. 7. I will not handle Zuko's sword. I will keep my hands off his equipment. 7a. I will not use the expression handle Zuko's sword in public or private. Ditto for his equipment. 8. How many damn travel songs do you know? is not a request, apparently. 9. I may not let the cat take responsibility for any of my actions. 10. Anything involving live squid and a flute is probably a bad idea. 11. Lieutenant G's bunk is not for bouncing. 12. I will not write any more ballads about the infamous goat in the prince's bed incident. 13. I will not hold funerals for a rat. Even if the rat in question did, surf the ship to the best of its nature and ability. 14. Master Iroh's being the Dragon of the West does not make Zuko the Salamander of the West, two doors down and three inches up. 15. I will not introduce myself at port as the ship mascot. 16. I will not declare Agni Kai challenges on the cat's behalf. 17. I will not accept piggyback rides from anyone below the rank of lieutenant. 18. Whatever happens on music night doesn't get discussed outside of music night. 19. I will not adopt anything scheduled to be on the menu. That includes eels, shrimp, carp, and roots. 20. I will not ask any firebender on duty to play hot potato, no matter how much I want a snack. Suddenly, she is 14. At 14, a Fire Nation girl is not a child, 
but a woman. She puts away her dolls, readying her hands for duty, for marriage, for her future. She abandons studies of history and arithmetic to practice managing a household and raising a family. She will bow before the tablet of her ancestors, asking forgiveness for her inborn weaknesses and begging guidance. She will accept a red undertunic to wear beneath her childish robes before exchanging the garments for darker, mature layers and longer sleeves. She will uncoil the braid crowning her temples and pin up her long black hair. At fourteen, Katara looks nothing like a Fire Nation girl. She wears loose, full trousers tucked into practical high boots, not unlike those of a soldier. Her tunics and vests are high-collared, boyish if not for the long, soft sleeves of vines and flowers embroidered at the hem. She runs across the deck of a ship without faltering, climbs fast, reads maps easily, and keeps a small dagger hidden in her left boot. She listens and jokes and sings with men thirty years her senior and plays pie show with sly success. She knows how to fix a net, hone a blade, skin any animal smaller than her arm, tourniquet a wound, and make a prince laugh. Her stitches are invisible and present on the back or sleeve or knee or neckline of every crewman. Yet... Iroh finds himself occasionally startled by the blooming prettiness on her face. She is stubborn, generous, polite, forthright, and she is growing more into her skin every day. She is a clever girl, an honorable girl, a good girl. But Iroh doesn't know what to do with her, because she loves Zuko. It is a young, not calloused love. Iroh doubts Katara has any conscious awareness of it. It is a feeling based on friendship, loyalty, and compassion, relying not on romance, but proximity and recognition. Impossible to notice for what it is, unless one knows where and how to look. But Iroh knows. They have, after all, been under his watch for a very long time. And Iroh is not so old as to forget what it is to be young and lonely. He knows enough to recognize the signs, the fearless smile, the fond exasperation, the brightened eyes. In Katara's room, there is a sleeping robe too big for a girl, fourteen or otherwise. On its border is a slowly growing design of scales, a dragon and a fish together. The long body and little tails are painstakingly crafted, each line a testimony of care and attention. The great beast's head is not yet begun, but Iroh knows its eyes will be a rich, tawny gold. She is fourteen, Iroh tells himself. It will change. For now, let things be as they are. After dinner, Iroh takes a brocaded pouch and gives it to the girl. Katara's face is curious, then startled, then delighted. Reverently, she turns over one hairpin and then the other, fingering the ornaments with shy wonder. Gold and pearl, 
The pin's length is simple in design, but elegant. Perhaps too simple and too elegant for a girl still young enough to appreciate glitter without substance. But Iroh doesn't regret his choice. The pearls gleam like the skin of the moon. Curling her fingers around the gift, she bows with gratitude. And then, because no amount of propriety will keep Katara from being Katara, she throws both arms around Iroh's middle in a joyful hug. It is at this point that Zuko leaves the room without a word. The pleasure on Katara's face momentarily dims. But she doesn't give Iroh a chance to step in and offer comfort, smiling again within seconds and undoing the simple braid of her hair. Loose, Iroh is surprised, not at the length of the cascade, but at the wealth of it, how comfortably the firelight lingers in the waves. He's almost sorry to see her start twisting the mass into order, trying to fashion an elegant knot to secure upward, as is proper. It is a tricky first-time effort without a mirror to guide the work, but none are present. Like himself, Katara keeps nothing of the sort around her. The unspoken reason for this returns suddenly, his face determined, startling them both. Here. He thrusts a tightly wrapped silken square at her. Katara takes it instinctively, and the unfinished chignon tumbles down over her shoulders. Face openly puzzled, she unwraps the silk. For a moment, she holds a spotless piece of sun in her hands. But then the angle changes, and again Iroh thinks of the moon. Its silver is shining, exquisitely engraved and molded around a disc of polished bronze reflecting spots of golden light onto Katara's cheek. The mirror is obviously the work of a master. Ira wonders where, or more specifically, when. His nephew acquired it. Zuko hates shopping and is steadfastly disproving of impractical objects, no matter how aesthetically pleasing. Katara's face and the rigid set of Zuko's shoulders tell Iroh there is a message in the gift whose meaning transcends the occasion. Katara does not hug Zuko. Clasping the gift to her chest, brown hands crossed over the silver, she bows low. The depth of it holds enough respect to satisfy a king, but it is her honesty that makes the gesture profound, elevating it into pure grace. From her position, she cannot see the gratefulness on Zuko's face. Iroh can. He does not doubt both expressions are sincere. When she rises and looks at the gift again, eyes dancing, the formality of the moment softens into sweetness. She spins with girlish zeal, irresistible, hair swinging like wings around her. Iroh cannot help smiling at the picture she makes. Zuko rolls his eyes, an unprincely action Iroh has not seen him do in nearly two years, and tells her to quit being foolish. You're like a child. The reprimand does nothing to extinguish the shine of her happiness. Am not. She is full of unconscious and spellbinding charm. Fourteen, 
Iroh thinks with a dull pang of memory is young enough to be innocently and blamelessly unaware of the power of your instinctive actions. Zuko scowls, it has no bite, and takes the mirror from her hands. Katara's mild look of affront dissipates when he carefully raises the disc to the level of her face. Once again, she gathers her hair and arranges it into the correct upsweep. Turning her head a bit to the side, eyes never leaving the reflection between Zuko's hands, and thus never actually looking away from Zuko, Katara inserts the hairpins with elaborate care. Finished, she lowers her hands, tilting her head experimentally to and fro, and smiles. What do you think? It's you. Katara smiles again, taking the words as a compliment and not a confession. Iroh looks at the 14-year-old girl with gold in her hair and the 16-year-old boy with silver in his hands and sees nothing that wasn't there before. But then, Iroh is old enough to know that love is invisible. <laughs> It is too late to turn back. Overhead, the sky hardens without warning, dense with menace, but they are too far out and neither the ship nor its occupants have any choice except enduring. The thickening air smells tart, yet vaguely sweet, and it is glaringly, bitterly cold. Orders are barked and obeyed. As the swells build, Every man's hand is busy with preparing the ship for danger. They ready for the worst. They get it. The sea which carried them obediently before is now a beast eager to devour. Dark waters paw the ship and gales scour the deck, everything thrown violently off kilter into chaos. The temptation to panic is inevitable. Zuko braces himself as another onslaught of rain and wind bludgeons him, unafraid, just cold and very, very wet. A flicker of color, too bright to belong to any sensible crew member, catches his eye, and suddenly there is room for fear among the cold and wet after all. What the hell are you doing here? Get down below! Now! She stares at him, not backing down, hair plastered to her skull, skin glistening, 
clothes dark with water, Katara looks small and fierce, but he can't help noting the peonies embroidered onto her jacket. I can help! I'm ordering you to... The shout goes unfinished. A wave crashes down and drags Zuko across the deck, almost to the edge. Mouthful of salt, blood or brine, it's hard to tell. He spends a moment laying flat, spreading his weight in order to be a harder target to snag, then starts to stand. Halfway to his feet, Zuko sees a column of water rise. There is no time to run, nothing to grab or brace against, and his fire will not be enough to stop it. Above the chaos of the storm and the waterlogged din in his ears, Zuko thinks he hears his uncle cry warning. He thinks dimly that he hears another voice shout as well. The wave begins to fall. But not on him. Instead, the liquid pillar bucks and sways, bends, throwing its deadly weight against the hull rather than across the deck. When Zuko remembers to breathe, he stands and turns to see Katara in a classic half-stance, one knee bent forward and one leg stretched back, arms extended forward with both palms raised. Behind her, Iroh and two crew members stare with stunned wonder, but there is no time for shock or gratitude. The ship shudders and Katara falls to her knees. Zuko helps her up. I'm not leaving! We need to reach that ice. It's dangerous, but it will buffer the gale. He doesn't release the hold on her arms, steadying her when another jolt threatens to pitch the girl off her feet. I need you to ward off the waves at least a little bit. Can you do it? Eyes wide, she nods. I can try. Most of them are too big, but I can lessen the impact or steer them away so we don't get toppled over. I can do it. With the noise and blast around them, Zuko has to lean in close to be heard. Too close. When he speaks, the heat of his mouth reaches her, and even now, among the overwhelming turmoil and danger, Zuko is distinctly aware of being felt. I don't want you here. It is not an insult. Katara smiles. The warmth of it is as incongruous and insane as the yellow flowers on her sleeve. Just... trust me. What choice does he have? Because she has absorbed the same lessons on the importance of being rooted as he, Katara's mission requires balance. Because the ship has no stability to spare, Zuko becomes her anchor. He stays close while the waves leap, alert for any blow that may hurl her overboard. Absorbed in her task, Katara is blind to how close and how often she comes to the edge. Zuko keeps himself ready to pull her back. Several times he does this, closing hard fingers around her wrist, or in one particularly brutal quake, looping an arm around her waist and dragging. Every time he touches her, 
Zuko feels the tremors running between Katara's muscles and skin. She is not ready for this. The meager amount of practice Katara has managed secretively in the past two years combines with the scant amount of instruction from years before to create a weak supply of ability. Ironically, she has spent almost as much effort concealing her abilities as Zuko has spent training his. A wall of brine pummels them, and Zuko decides things will change. The secret's out. The crew will learn to deal, even if he has to tan hides to make it happen. And it's going to be different. Starting tomorrow, we'll train every day. Together, she'll learn to move ships by the end of the month. Steady. Katara doesn't nod, doesn't look at him but raises her arms with determination and a swell of seawater staggers back. Another replaces it, and another, and another. Time turns to water. There are no waves, just one wave, always one wave, one unvarying obstacle to overcome. There can be only one wave because to acknowledge the existence of more will mean succumbing to them. Nothing exists outside of this moment. Only he and her and water. Hours of eternity later, they reach the ice, giants of white shining against murderous horizon. Captain! Ready, men. When? Be careful. Ready for it. Katara's arms fall. Exhausted, Drained to the last, she slumps against Zuko, mouthing something he can't hear. He puts a hand on her shoulder, and she looks up. A bedraggled lock of hair lies like a bandage across her forehead. Zuko raises his hand to brush it away. Wave! There is a brief, infinite instant when all Zuko sees is the horror reflecting in Katara's eyes. And then she shoves. Small brown hands, fatigued and familiar, push against his chest and send him stumbling away. He knows she's stronger than she looks. From his position, Zuko has an excellent view of the icy avalanche cascading down them. No. Katara! Rushing forward, back to where he should be, where he promised to be, Back to her, Zuko knows he won't reach her in time. Zuko runs anyway. For one desperate, frozen moment, he almost believes he'll make it. He almost does. The last thing he sees is the hopelessness in her eyes. All is quiet when he wakes up. Zuko lies still, breathing and staring at patterns of shadow that dance on his ceiling. There is an unclear, hard ache in his right side, a vaguely familiar discomfort. The ice must have damaged a rib, he realizes numbly. Maybe it's broken. Maybe it's not. Zuko doesn't care. Turning his head, he sees his uncle sitting by the bed. A kettle and cup rest on a small table beside the man. 
The cup has a blue pattern of bamboo trees on it. He recognizes it. A mad, fierce hope leaps up in Zuko, squeezing his heart like hot iron. He opens his mouth to say her name. A flicker of color, too bright, catches his eye. The yellow peonies are as ridiculously cheerful as ever, seeming to grow more so each time Zuko sees them. The torn patch of material looks bright and pathetic in Iroh's lap. His uncle turns toward him, sorrow and sympathy brimming in his gaze, and Zuko turns away, not bothering to spare his injured side. Thank you for listening to this adapted audio recording of Tempest in a Teacup by AKA Vertigo. Shu Wang and Katara were voiced by me, Doodle Lady. Iroh and Zuko are voiced by me, Ride Boldly Ride. The narrator was voiced by me, Bulletproof Teacup. Scripts were arranged by myself. Visuals were created by Doodle Lady. Audio was arranged by Ride Boldly Ride. The next segment in our saga will continue in two weeks. Thank you for listening.